I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This has been an exciting week for constitutional debate uh, at the National Press Club in Washington, the National Constitution Center, the Federalist Society, and the American Constitution Society hosted the first of a national series of town hall debates that will transform constitutional discourse in America like the Lincoln-Douglas debates by bringing together these two great organizations to debate the constitutional issues of the day. And these podcasts are a continuation of that great debating program. Today, we are discussing one of the most interesting cases in front of the Supreme Court this term, uh, lawyers arguing about Texas's right to ban state-issued license plates that feature the Confederate flag. The case was Walker versus Texas Division, son of Confederate Veterans Incorporated. And it asked the court to settle a dispute about the distinction between government speech and private speech and the challenges of drawing the boundaries. The case came about in 2009 when the Texas Sons of Confederate Veterans submitted an application to the state's specialty license program for a plate design that featured the Confederate battle flag. The Motor Vehicles Board declined the application, citing a policy that it, quote, may refuse to create a new specialty license plate if the design might be offensive to any member of the public. Uh, the Confederate Veterans sued, claiming a violation of First Amendment free speech rights, and they also said that Texas used a government-held viewpoint to discriminate against the organization. At the heart of the case is the nature of the license plates. Are they government speech or private speech? And which test should the court adopt to decide whether or not uh, a particular proposed license plate is permissible? Uh, joining us to discuss this fascinating case. This is the first license plate case to appear before the court in 38 years. Are two of the country's leading experts, friends of the National Constitution Center, both of them filed briefs in the case. Scott Gaylord is professor of law at Elon University. Professor Gaylord filed an amicus brief for the state of North Carolina in this case. He's also a co-counsel in a pending case from North Carolina about Choose Life license plates. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya co-wrote a brief in the Walker case with P.J. O'Rourke and Nat Hantoff. Welcome, gentlemen, and uh, Scott, I'll start with you. Can you take us through the, Kate's, the, the case's origins, uh, starting with the 1977 decision in Woolley and Maynard about New Hampshire's live free or die license plate, and then explain what the central uh, legal issue is in this case about whether this is government speech or private speech. Sure, be happy to. Uh, the Texas uh, live free or die case uh, coming out of New Hampshire, as you mentioned back in 1977, dealt with uh, compelled speech. So the Maynards were Jehovah's Witnesses who did not want to carry the state's ideological message on their plate. They had taped over it a couple different times and received citations and finally a student said, wait a second, you can't force us to carry this message. We cannot be required to be, uh, as the court called it, a mobile billboard. Um, and so the court analyzed that uh, case and uh, decided largely on government, um, on compelled speech grounds, uh, not so much, no direct discussion of private or government speech, although it subsequently plays an important role in the circuit courts as they try to anal analyze the, the Texas case and other cases across the country. Uh, in terms of specialty license plates, 
uh, really start getting going in the early 2000s, and you start seeing uh, cases across the country come up. Uh, most of those centered, or at least a large number, on Choose Life license plates, but other ones as well. The Fourth Circuit had a Confederate flag case as well for Sons of Confederate veterans back in early 2000, um, and then heard Choose Life plates. And the circuits ended up being extremely split early on. Uh, we have a variety of different ways. Some One Fifth Circuit kicked out a case based on the Tax Injunction Act. The Eleventh Circuit dismissed a case for lack of standing. But when those cases, that courts that got to the merits, they reached a variety of different conclusions. So you had some circuits adopting on a reasonable observer test, consistent, if you will, with what we see in the endorsement um, test area under the Establishment Clause, and the, that'd be the Seventh and Eighth Circuits. And the Fifth Circuit in the Texas case, actually, um, the majority adopted uh, the reasonable observer test. Other circuits, like the Fourth and Ninth Circuit, adopted a multi-factor test, a four-factor test. They said you have to look at and apply these factors and determine whether it is uh, private or government speech. And then the Sixth Circuit adopted what it called a control test based on the Supreme Court's decision in Johans, which was a beef it's what's for dinner case. Um, and in that case, the court articulated the government speech doctrine to some extent, um, dealing with the effective control that the government had over the message in the ads. Subsequent to that, we had Sumum, uh, the Ten Commandments Monument in Pleasant Grove City, Utah, and for the first time, the court unanimously approved the government speech doctrine. In the wake of both Sumum and Johans, the Supreme Court cases, the Fifth and Fourth Circuits both basically said, but even though the court decided those cases, they never really articulated a clear standard. And so after those cases, we still had this three-way circuit split persisting, and I think that's what uh, led the court to openly say, wait, we got to take a look at this. We need to um, see and, and figure out what's going on with government speech and maybe give a little more clarity to that since the, the lower courts are in, in not disarray, but having confusion as to what the proper standard is. Thanks very much for that introduction. Uh, Ilya, before the court, the justices didn't seem too focused on the precise nature of the test, but were focused on whether it's public or private speech. And in your quite hysterical brief for the Cato Institute, you and P.J. work uh, well, first of all, have continued your excellent tradition of hysterical uh, briefs, uh, um, including footnotes suggesting that you could uh, include all sorts of uh, offensive stereotypes about the justices themselves, but you chose not to do that because you th thought it wouldn't be effective for winning your case. So tell us why it was that the justices seemed less focused on the doctrinal questions that Scott mentioned and, and more on this public and private speech question and, and why it is in your brief that you argue that this case poses a central test of the ability of people to express themselves autonomously by, uh, as, by, by, by embracing uh, offensive speech. Right. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me again. Um, and just uh, uh, to let your listeners know, my brief was narrower than uh, a lot of the ones that, that were filed. We took no position on whether this was public or private speech. We just wanted to talk about the importance uh, of offensive speech and how it's protected by the First Amendment and how the government should not be judging what is or is not offensive or what's, what's too offensive. So if you want kind of a more doctrinal, solid analysis uh, on uh, the side supporting uh, the Confederate veterans, I, I commend uh, Eugene Volokh's brief on behalf of the, uh, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. But what we were uh, trying to say um, is that uh, offensive speech uh, is protected by the First Amendment. It's not in one of those categories like uh, fighting words uh, or child pornography uh, that is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and so just merely because something offensive is not uh, uh, reason for the government to uh, ban it. And, and this uh, came up in the context of, well, is this really the government banning certain kinds of speech, or is it the government controlling what kind of speech it itself 
uh, speaks. Uh, and I think that is really set off uh, in the argument by comments made by Justices Breyer and Chief Justice Roberts, respectively, when Justice Breyer said, now hold on, this isn't a circumstance where Texas is preventing you from putting up a bumper sticker or even painting your car with the Confederate flag, like the General Lee, say, of uh, Dukes of Hazard's fame. Um, they're just saying we can't have it on our official plate. And Chief Justice Roberts said, well, hold on, how is uh, you know, when, when Texas allows plates uh, that talk about Dr. Pepper or Mighty Fine Burger or even the University of Oklahoma, how is that Texas really speaking? This is just a, a money-making operation. We wouldn't be in this problem if you just had your traditional, you know, one or two kind of versions of, uh, of Texas plate. And that ultimately, I think, is what this is going to turn on. Uh, is this Texas speaking? Um, you know, the, the Solicitor General of Texas said, well, Texas is in control of the license plate, but is that enough? Uh, because if Texas is speaking, certainly it can decide what it can say. Uh, there's you know, certain other types of restrictions, but it can decide. Uh, but if it's not speaking, if it's offering some sort of public forum, uh, then the First Amendment comes into play, and then offensive speech is protected under the First Amendment. Scott, can you respond to the argument in Ilya's brief that offensive speech has value? He, he argues that it contributes to the marketplace of ideas and also to personal autonomy. Uh, he has some extremely funny and, and wicked uh, put-downs of PGR work against Canadians. It's, it's, it's a great read for all of our listeners. But um, the court has in the past recognized the value of offensive speech, and yet at the oral argument, the justices also seem concerned that it could go too far and states might have to accept license plates with swastikas on them, for example, or racial epithets. So how might the court balance the value of offensive speech against their fears of the, of the slippery slope? I think it'll be interesting to see what the court does. I mean, agree with Illy. Obviously, the First Amendment provides protection and, and broad protection from things like uh, F the draft on a jacket worn in the hallways of a courtroom. Some people find that offensive. People can find all sorts of things offensive, and that by itself is not, at least in certain fora and certain locations, not sufficient. The question here is what is, as Ilya mentions, is what is the nature of the license plate? Has the government opened that up and created a forum for private speech, as the Sons of Confederate Veterans argue, or is it really just the government speech? Because that same jacket worn in the hallways, you start walking into the courtroom, that could get you in a little bit of trouble. So you have to be careful in terms of where you're expressing it and, and how you do it. And as Ely mentioned, I mean, Justice Breyer was sort of interesting. He, he sort of wanted to say, let's strip away all these factors and theories, and let's just look and see what the impact on speech is. And so he wanted to get down to the sort of bare bones and, and what's going to restrict speech more, um, the Texas's argument or the Sons of Confederate argument. And ultimately, you know, he seemed to think, well, private expression is hurt by Texas's argument, but he says not a lot. I mean, you get to say what you want through a bumper sticker or through a license plate frame or window decal. You can paint the entire vehicle and do other things. So maybe it's, it's not a big deal, you know, in, in that sense, not limiting the ability to get those messages out. And even Justice Kennedy sort of joined in with that at one point, saying to the counsel for SCV, so in a way, your argument, quote, unquote, curtails speech. Um, if you prevail, you're going to prevent a lot of Texans from saying things that they want to say uh, through the plate. So it's on the minds of the, the justices, and we'll have to see. Certainly, offensive speech can be protected, but the government may not be required to carry that speech. As Justice Sotomayor said, it's sort of, a, if you will, a reverse woolly problem. Remember, under Woolley v. Maynard, the government couldn't force the Maynards to carry the government's message, live free or die. And Justice Sotomayor entertained the idea, well, wait a second, isn't this sort of the reverse? Why can the Sons of Confederate Veterans force the state of Texas to carry a message that it doesn't want to um, carry forward? So it'll be interesting to see if that resonates with you know, some of the other justices 
and uh, how they decide that. Ilya, well, first of all, I want uh, you to share with us some of your favorite moments from your brief because it's so entertaining. And then to answer the question of where to draw the line to the degree that the justices were concerned about a ruling that could allow swastikas and racial slurs. Is there a way to draw a line that bars types of statements that might provoke violence? Should the test be in, in, in incitement? Where, where, where exactly would you draw the line? Sure. Um, well, first of all, this is uh, the second of what I hope we'll get a chance to uh, make a trilogy of, uh, of so-called funny briefs. Uh, <laughs> last year, we defended uh, false speech in, in the context of an Ohio law that criminalized so-called false speech against political candidates. That law has since been struck down on remand. Um, now we're defending uh, offensive speech. I hope sometime in the future we'll, we'll get to defend stupid speech. I think that would complete the trilogy. Um, but uh, we start off by pointing out that it's, uh, uh, Texas is showing some chutzpah here because while it's saying that uh, uh, this Confederate flag, just the flag, is offensive, too offensive to allow on license plates, it has an official state Confederate history month. It has a Confederate Heroes Day. It maintains monuments uh, uh, commemorating uh, the uh, the, the Confederates uh, uh, lost uh, in the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression. However, uh, the Lone Star State uh, wants to uh, cut it. And here, it delegates to the DMV of, of all state agencies uh, the power to determine what is and isn't offensive. I guess it's, it's delegated to that agency because the DMV has special expertise in, in offending people itself. Um, but the, the, the problem is it's, it seems to be pursuing its mission in a, in a half-hearted way. Think of all the – there are over 400 specialty license plates that, that Texas has, uh, and uh, most of them, I'm sure, offends at least somebody. The Boy Scouts plate uh, could ruffle the feathers of those who consider the, the Scouts an, an anti-gay menace. Or what about the plates that are talking about uh, Desert Storm or fight terrorism? If you're a pacifist, that might be problematic. Or, or if you're a, an Al-Qaeda Al supporter, for that matter. Uh, what about Dr. Pepper or Mighty Fine Burger? I'm sure Michael Bloomberg and, and the Nanny Staters are, are offended by that. Uh, Native Americans or, or true Native Texans, the Apache, the Comanche, uh, what would they think of a of a good old boy driving around uh, with a native Texan plate uh, on on his pickup truck? Or or PETA uh, might have a a beef or, or at least a soy beef uh, with the Texas Trophy Hunters Association plate. I mean, uh, we could go on and on. And some of these are ridiculous, and some of these are are quite literally offensive, uh, offending uh, somebody, which is the only standard that's there. So it seems like by by providing this forum that, that, let's be honest, is there as a money-making venture for Texas, and lots of states have this. I, in fact, uh, paid a little bit of money, I think it was 30 bucks, to have the, the Gadsden flag, uh, what some people know as the, the, the Tea Party flag, say, the, the snake on a yellow backdrop that says, don't tread on me. That's my plate uh, on my Virginia cars. These states that are operating these money-making ventures, uh, there are some limits on uh, the state uh, authority to be able to uh, reject plates. For example, the hypothetical came up uh, I think from Justice Kagan. Well, what about a vote Republican plate, and then you don't allow vote Democratic plate? Now, there's no evidence here that the Sons of Union veterans say petition for for something here, uh, but presumably that would be approved. Um, I don't know if Texas would be then arguing this case in some other way, but I think the line is, uh, in effect, to borrow a doctrine from from antitrust. Say here, the government is participating in the marketplace, really, and nobody is thinking that. Uh, Texas is saying that I'd rather be golfing to name another specialty plate that that's on offer. They know that that's the person that's uh, that's driving that car that's offering that message, even if Texas is offering that forum. 
So I think there's a line to be drawn somehow that, that Texas is effectively offering a, an all-comers policy, and it's not like this is a limited resource like a, like a, a geographically bound park like was the case in one of the previous cases, the Summum case, where there's only a certain amount of land for monuments to put up, and if everybody was allowed to put up a monument, then the whole park would be just monuments. Here, there's essentially an infinite supply of these license plates, and Texas is saying you can create your own. Well, the standard has to be uh, that Texas can only ban things uh, if, if it's create your own that aren't protected by the First Amendment. Great. Scott, Scott what is your response to some of uh, Ilya's hypotheticals? Is there any limit to viewpoint discrimination if the speech is uh, viewed as uh, public speech? And if it is uh, viewed as non-public speech, how would that bode for the related cases you're involved in, including the Choose Life case in North Carolina? Sure. I, I mean, certainly, you know, this idea of the nature of the speech is important and trying to determine when it's government. Obviously, under the government speech doctrine that the court unanimously articulated in the Summum case, uh, the court says the First Amendment does not apply. So why that's such an important threshold question is for that reason, because if the First Amendment doesn't apply, then the state can engage in viewpoint-based and content-based discrimination and can do whatever it would like with it. Now, there is a, certainly, from our perspective, an important difference between the Texas program and North Carolina. Our brief was filed on behalf of neither party um, because our view is whatever you decide with Texas, legislatively controlled specialty plates are government speech. And so, therefore, not subject to the same type of um, for analysis and should be you know, uh, protected in the government speech. Uh, you saw Justices uh, Kagan and Ginsburg pose the question directly to counsel for SCV, what if these were legislatively controlled? And he said, I think that would be a different outcome. That would be a different situation um, from what we have here, where it does seem at some level, um, at least the court suggests this as well as Justice Ginsburg talking about this nebulous standard, uh, Texas says, here's the DMV procedure, an administrative procedure. You can sort of bring your plate, and if we happen not to like it, we'll reject it. Uh, that is you know, possibly a much more broader delegation of authority and, and, as I think Justice Kagan put it, quote, unquote, relinquish control um, over the, the whole program and open it up to other viewpoints um, and, and private speech. Uh, our position is that states that have legislatively controlled plates haven't done that. You know, and you see, I think at one point, uh, Justice Alito says uh, expressly that if you have a standard issue plate, of course that's government speech. So in North Carolina, it would be our first in flight plates. The government designs a message, approves it legislatively and all of that. Our view, especially license plates, are just like that, that uh, the legislature has to approve every word, everything about it, and then the governor signs it, and then it's authorized. Um, you know, Justice Roberts does express concern about, I think, two different things, and maybe more, but at least two, uh, that the government had no clear identifiable policy and that the purpose was to get money. Well, obviously, just to try to make money doesn't preclude things from being First Amendment speech activity um, and, you know, for private citizens in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, whatever. And so the government still can try to do that. And Summum actually talks about the ability to get money ahead of time to cover costs of monuments and that those are still government speech, even if you're waiting and even if people attribute a variety of different meanings to those. I think the no identifiable policy is sort of an interesting one because as Justice Sotomayor talked about this reverse Woolley situation, that isn't it just the same that the Woolies couldn't force the um, New Hampshire to, to carry the Woolies, uh, sorry, the Maynard's sired message? Um, you could have the same type of thing, I think, with uh, a case called Hurley, which involved the parades and ability to require 
uh, parade organizers to have certain groups within the parade. In that case, the court says you don't have to have an identifiable message. You don't have to have a narrowly defined, and this was the St. Patrick's Day parade in, in Boston. The court said, there might not be much of anything in terms of a distinct message here, a whole lot of different things, but the parade organizers get to pick and choose. It's their decision. And a reversed Hurley situation would, would I think, respond to um, Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts' concerns in, in saying that, well, when the government's speaking, it doesn't have to have a clearly defined. It can celebrate, just like in the Summum in the Monument context, those things about the state that it deems worthy of celebration, be it its educational diversity, its scenic opportunities, its sports activities, all those things that may be of interest to its citizens as well as um, those who see their plates out and about in the world. Ilya, you emphasize in your brief uh, that, uh, as you put it, quote, one man's offensive speech is another's exercise of social commentary or personal expression. Uh, based on the questioning in the court uh, this week, is this a line of thought that the justices seem to be interested in pursuing? And since to do so, they would seem to have to hold that this was private, not public speech. Uh, what was your sense of, of where they were going to come out on that question? Uh, I, I think they're Basically, I mean, it, it wasn't discussed much because uh, the assumption simply was that if this is private speech, then uh, Texas can't do this. Um, uh, there, there wasn't much discussion of how to draw the line uh, of offensiveness or what's not protected. The whole question was, is, is Texas properly regulating it? I mean, uh, and again, perhaps we should have filed our brief as supporting either side, too, because we explicitly took no position on the private-public speech um, uh, uh, issue other than to say that we don't like the government being a, a censor. Um, and, uh, you know, we just wanted to make sure that the, the court knew that uh, or was reminded of, of how important offensive speech was, uh, not just as a technicality, not grudgingly, uh, but celebrating offensive speech, whether it's comedians pushing the envelope. We reference Lenny Bruce, uh, his lawyer is actually one of the, one of the co-amici on the brief, uh, or Richard Pryor kind of breaking down taboos and expanding uh, what you can socially discuss, or the, the gay rights movement. We talk about uh, how important it's been um, in, in uh, the gay rights movement to have people um, break taboos and uh, uh, advance uh, individualism in certain ways that it certainly is uh, offensive uh, to some people. So, uh, again, the, the, you know, we weren't expecting uh, our brief to get a lot of uh, discussion, uh, other than the media, which it, which it has, of course. But uh, I, I think the justices were uh, reminded, if, if they had forgotten, that this is important speech, and therefore uh, that's uh, why the only question is whether it's private or public. If this is private, then Texas won't have a, a leg left to stand on. Scott, what was your sense of how the justices were coming out on the question of whether this is public or private speech? And I think they were struggling with it. You see, as I mentioned, the disparate ways that the lower courts had decided these issues. Uh, I saw the court and the justices trying to struggle with sort of both of these. At, at one level, you had Texas arguing that, or at least some of the justices worrying that everything's government speech, right? And they see this through the amicus briefs in support of SCV. That's one of the real big concerns that these different groups and organizations have, right? They, how far are you going to push this? Can the government get away and, and call anything government speech and therefore engage in viewpoint discrimination? On the other side, it's SCV saying, you know, in generalization, but, oh, this is all private speech. And that's where Justice Ginsburg's, I think, swastika example really hit home and caused some concern for other justices saying, hold on, wait, can you really force them to carry that message? Is that thing, what about jihad or make pot legal? Uh, I think bong hits for Jesus got a few chuckles um, for the whole thing on the plate as well. What's that balance going to be? And if you take each view to its extreme, 
what does that mean for both government and private speech? And so, you know, and Ginsburg started the whole thing out with this idea of, well, isn't this a nebulous standard? And talking about offensiveness as a standard, which I think, you know, relates directly to Ilya's concerns. And um, a lot of those questions and some difficult ones about vote Republican or other things, or even uh, Alito's billboard example, seem to be directed at this sort of amorphous, nebulous standard that Texas had given to an administrative agency. And so if you get rid of, you know, that standard and if you maintain from our perspective something like uh, legislatively controlled, then it's not as great of a threat as Breyer mentions because other opportunities abound for, for First Amendment speech activity, uh, just like in sort of Rusty Sullivan funding case, but viewed as um, related to government speech as well. The doctors who participate in Title X programs are still free to engage in all sorts of expressive activity, just not within the confines of the, the program itself. So to here for the plates. Um, on the plates themselves, you may not be able to if it's legislatively controlled, but you can do a variety of other expressive activity, and it can be as offensive as you want to. Speaking of Justice Ginsburg's uh, hypotheticals, I may, perhaps the funniest moment in the argument is when Justice Ginsburg said, suppose someone says, I want to have jihad on my license plate, and Mr. George, the lawyer, said vegan, and Justice Ginsburg said jihad. I was trying to imagine exactly how she pronounced it from the transcript. <laughs> you say jihad, I say vegan. Um, Ilya, is, is there any limit? I mean, should people be able to put swastikas on, on license plates? Um, well, the only limits are fighting words or incitement. So um, you can only put swastikas on your license plate if you can march through a, uh, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood uh, as a group of neo-Nazis waving the, the Nazi flag, which, which you can, the Supreme Court has said. I think this is probably uh, the, same, the same sort of thing. Uh, I think the marketplace would correct for that. People probably shun that vehicle and um, you know things like that I don't think it's it's really going to be a a large problem I think nine states currently allow the Confederate flag on their on their specialty plates we haven't heard of uh, you know mass riots breaking out because of that so it would have to be some sort of standard like that and uh, there is a difference between offensiveness and obscenity which still in theory is prohibited although nobody knows it I guess you have to know it when you see it, but uh, there's a difference between this uh, little Confederate flag and, say, uh, a photo of a, I don't know, slave master raping a slave or something like this, very graphic. And uh, I think there would be time, place, and manner uh, regulations that could be applied in that context as well. And I should add, by the way, the, uh, you know, to give, uh, you know, well, you can call it silly or not, but the, the first in flight, that's the standard license plate of North Carolina, that must be terrifying to people who are afraid of flying. Terrifying indeed. Um, Scott, I'd asked about the Choose Life case in North Carolina that you're involved with. Tell us about that case and what, how, how the ruling in, in this uh, license plate case might have implications for it. Yeah, our case went up uh, about just a little bit before the Texas case and the court uh, straight-lined them, considered them at the same time. And so both cases were relisted on several occasions together. And then for whatever reason, uh, the court decided to go with the Texas case. So the North Carolina case is being held over, a case called Berger versus ACLU. Uh, and in that case, it deals with Choose Life license plates. And the Fourth Circuit applying its four-factor test uh, for what it calls hybrid speech, which is interesting because the hybrid speech doctrine has never been adopted by the court or really by any other circuit. Uh, but we see uh, Justice Sotomayor invoking it in oral argument, um, saying, well, I think this might be hybrid speech. Now, 
she applies that in a very different way under the Fourth Circuit's uh, use of hybrid speech. They look at the different factors, but ultimately say, well, it's hybrid, but really it should be resolved as private speech. And, and they rely on Willie V. Maynard showing that uh, plates are expressive activity on behalf of individuals. Justice Sotomayor um, really has a different take as she considers that reverse Woolley situation and says, well, hold on, if it's both parties speaking, then you can't force the government to carry your private message either. Um, so she's invoking the same terminology but applying it in a very different way. Um, given that we our case involves legislative control plates, we'll have to see. It depends how uh, broadly or narrowly the court decides Walker. If the majority of the court rules for Texas, I think North Carolina will automatically win on, on remand and, and must. Um, but even if they say that they've created a form through the administrative with this broad amorphous standard, you know, our position is that the court should still recognize that uh, legislatively controlled plates are different, just like SCV's counsel admitted. And I think some of the, the, the justices suggested, certainly Justice Scalia, I think, has the view um, from his questions that all both types um, are government speech. But some of the other justices as well suggest maybe we have legislatively controlled plates have a different um, analysis and a different standard. So uh, we'll have to see how they rule um, and depending how broadly or narrowly it'll either directly impact or it may not. All right. It's time to analyze the uh, likely outcome. This one was complicated, but Ilya, based on your reading of the oral arguments, which way do you think the court will rule? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't in the courtroom, but I, I read the transcript, and, and I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, they're going to craft some sort of standard, obviously, that's currently lacking. Um, it's going to be they're going to break new ground in that sense. And they're going to probably try not to have it uh, sweep uh, beyond the unique type of forum, whether it's public or private, that uh, that a license plate represents. So it would have, uh, I'm sure, however they write it, uh, um, an effect on, on the North Carolina and other license plate cases, but probably not really a First Amendment impact uh, beyond there. And uh, as far as the, uh, the reverse Woolley scenario goes, uh, I guess that's when you put the the fur on the inside of the jacket, which uh, is an entertaining visual <laughs> to consider. Excellent, nicely done, Scott. Based on your reading of the oral argument, what, which way do you think the court will rule? I agree with Ilya. It's just really hard to tell. Uh, it, it started out obviously you got some immediately difficult questions from Justice Alito and others for counsel for Texas. Uh, and it looked like it was a, a tough day for uh, Texas. But then as soon as um, the counsel for the SCV stood up, they started getting hammered as well. So and it's really a mix of sort of concerns. I mean, Breyer was pursuing a line of argument all on his own. Kennedy uh, wanted to talk about the possibility of developing new types of traditional fora, um, resurrecting, if you will, his uh, concurrence in International Society of Krishna Consciousness versus Lee, uh, where he had, had postulated this possibility um, before. Uh, so a lot of different Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts with the no identifiable policy and, and just all about the money, uh, they really probing in different ways. So once they get you know back to the chambers and start really thinking about this in relation to what they said in government speech uh, in Summum and in Johans, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I think Texas's prospects were uh, brighter than I had anticipated, um, given the, the nebulous standard here, uh, but that's a distinct possibility, and certainly from our perspective, feel good in terms of the questions about legislatively controlled plates being treated differently um, and still allowing for First Amendment speech activity through bumper stickers, window decals, et cetera. Great. All right. It's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Ilya, what are the stakes in this case? Why is it important? And if the court rules uh, you know, in favor of Texas, 
what kind of offensive speech might be banned in the future? Well, it's not a huge case, as I said, in terms of the First Amendment broadly. My main concern, the reason I filed my brief, was to maintain protection for offensive speech and uh, maintain the restriction on, on government censorship. So if they decide this case for Texas by saying that this is completely government public speech, um, uh, or, or not a public forum, but a, but a government-controlled forum entirely, and uh, individuals can't force governments to say something, well, um, that won't make me feel uh, too bad, because uh, it's, I guess it's, it's not, uh, depending on how they, how they write it, uh, it's not quite, uh, it's a unique scenario where the government controls something like this. After all, the government technically owns your license plate or, or your passport, I guess. There's a few things like that. Uh, that that you think that you that are yours, but the government actually uh, owns them. Um, so it, it probably won't have legs beyond again the the North Carolina and, and other license plate uh, uh, scenarios. So in the grand scheme of the First Amendment, uh, you know, again, I, I made I stood my stood my ground about the importance uh, of offensive speech, qua offensive speech. Uh, I don't think that's going to be threatened by the court. So. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take the narrow loss on a license plate being tagged as government speech. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Scott, your closing thoughts on why this case is important and what the stakes for the First Amendment are. Yeah, it's, at least suggests I think it really matters um, how the court goes about it. So if they pursue a very limited type of forum, Justice Scalia suggested this, and I think Justice Sotomayor expressed some um, affinity to it that, you know, this is a unique type of expressive fora that's owned by the state, they're manufactured by the state, has the state's name on it, you know, all these different things. To the extent they, if they can get a, a majority of the court to uh, coalesce around that idea, then it is relatively narrow and left to sort of a license plate context, new type of fora, not new traditional fora like Kennedy's suggesting, but just a, a different type of forum, unique in its uh, level of control that the government has over it, and it's relatively minimal impact on other expressive activity through bumper stickers and such. But if they do really articulate a, a broader test for government speech, then I think this case could have much broader implications. I mean, if you think about whether you're in favor of it or against it, you know, the size of government, both federal and state, and the variety of things that it's involved with, and the number of opportunities it has for speech, well, that test then could, I think, have a much broader ramifications and could affect things going forward. Now, I think likely the court's going to try to avoid that type of broad ruling, um, but you have to see how they go about it. And at least only so far, two of the justices really focused on this unique nature of the form and restricting it to that type of form. So the possibility there is for a broad opinion, although we may just see a more limited one, which will have important First Amendment repercussions. Choose Life Plates have been you know, impacting uh, courts across the country and been a lot of litigation over specialty plates, but it won't have as broad a reach as if uh, the case where the court decides to um, take a broad statement about the government speech doctrine. Scott Gaylord and Ilya Shapiro, thank you for an illuminating, engaging, and indeed entertaining discussion of one of the most interesting free speech cases of the term. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.